Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Well, it's a pleasure for me to be back here again with you and uh, continue this series that we are doing, Apprenticing Under Jesus. And Bolton, you're getting me live, uh, not live this week, and actually in uh, small groups as well. So just have a suggestion for you. You have the freedom to actually stop a tape in the middle, rewind it, stop and discuss uh, things that you're listening to. So you have that flexibility, do it that way. So if you have the time and the opportunity, feel free to do that again. In May of 2013, uh, Vijay and I, uh, 2012 actually, sorry, Vijay and I did a day-night trip to Boston to take in two games between the Red Sox and the Blue Jays at famous Fenway Park. I happened to do my graduate work there, and so this is something Vijay has always wanted to do. However, the month before that, I'd had the double hernia surgery, and so even though we only had carry-on luggage, I needed his help to put it up and take it down, etc. A month later, Sham and I had to travel to the Middle East to speak uh, to international workers in, in, in Jordan. Now we had two 50-pound bags of luggage, and I still had absolutely no capacity. So every step of the way, we had to depend upon people to pick stuff up and put it on the baggage tro- uh, trolley, onto the carousels, take it back, etc. <clears throat> now, a few months after that, I was perfectly okay. I just needed help for a little while. But there are times when I needed help on a more continual basis. Uh, I'm not a handyman at all when it comes to housework. And so I need fix-it people, electrical friends, carpenter friends uh, that I draw upon, decorator friends who all happily help me out. And so a house looks good, but not because of me. That's help on a more continual basis. But then, every now and then, I've run into situations where I need help desperately because I'm totally helpless. January 2017, I was in India, uh, all set to speak the first night. I'd already had dinner. When out of nowhere, one of these episodes of extreme dizziness and nausea that I've been experiencing for the last seven or eight years or so at that time, that literally comes out of nowhere without warning, hit me. Now, there's usually telltale signs for about 10 or 15 minutes that I've got to know. And so this time, as we were making our way to the packed church five minutes away, I was desperately pleading with God, do something. I pleaded special circumstances. We've come all the way from India. People have paid my airfare. There's 300 people in the church. Lord, you have to do something. He didn't. He didn't. And so there on the stage, backstage, fortunately, before I could get to a washroom, I threw up. And for the next half an hour, two young men, not knowing what they were doing, held this old gray-haired man as he was just retching. I persuaded them that I wasn't deadly sick and take me back to my room where I just dropped fully clothed on my bed and stayed there till the next morning. These episodes, by the way, last four or five hours and then they're gone. I was totally helpless during that time. And I cried out to God for help. I didn't know there was something more on the way for me. Well, on the way back... Uh, I had to stop over three hours in Frankfurt after an 11-hour trip from Chennai, which was great. But we got delayed on the tarmac for three hours in Chennai. And so I landed in Frankfurt, 18 minutes left to make my connection, thinking they'd put me on the next flight, but they encouraged me to take it. So it was a mad dash through security, and I just burst in, in, into the new plane and sat down for another nine-hour flight. So 11-hour flight and a nine-hour flight 
And that did a number on my body, which in the interest of public decorum, I will simply mention had to do with my plumbing. I've never been to the washroom so many times in eight hours, and quite often not with intended consequences and results. Many an occasion, in fact, throughout that eight hours, I was desperately crying out to God. Now, we all go through times when we need help. We need physical help. We need financial help. We need help with the gift of time for babysitting to do our errands. And all of us have had that. Probably fewer of us can testify for times when we have actually been totally helpless and desperately crying out. In those times, we would cry out to God. Now, that's not any amazing insider rocket science. This one might be, though. On one of those abortive attempts on the plane, 35,000 feet up in the air, somewhere over the Atlantic. I was desperately crying out to God to let this body function the way he intended it to function. And I could hear him say, at least I had a strong impression in my spirit, Sundar, you are in desperate help right now and you're crying out to me and that's good. Do you know that that's where you really are all the time? You just don't know it. If you did, you would be crying out to me all the time. And that took my mind to John chapter 15, which read these words, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. What does nothing mean? Zilch, nyara, zero. That's what it means. Basically, Jesus is saying, apart from me, there's nothing you can do successfully in the relational dimensions of your life, at home, at work, in the neighborhood, in the church. There's really nothing significant you can do in terms of your academic career, in terms of your other pursuits in life. Nothing means nothing. And the more convinced we are of this, the more prayer will change from a belief to a value and we will begin to pray some more. That's the approach that we've been taking in the series that I introduced you to last week. Uh, four convictions that we're going to look at in these four weeks that taken together will move prayer slowly from just a belief into a value and therefore actually translate into more action. What did we look at last week? We learned that life is war. That we have an enemy a spiritual enemy, forces of darkness that are arrayed against 24-7 without any stoppage at all. We learned that we need weapons, and those weapons of this warfare, this spiritual warfare, are mobilized actually by prayer. Prayer isn't just one of the many weapons. It is the way in which we clothe ourselves with the weapons and deploy the weapons, especially the sword of the Spirit. We learned that our agenda for our prayers are not primarily the human channels through which this enmity against the church is expressed. But rather, we are to behave towards these people the way Jesus behaved towards them. Forgiving them, inviting them into a relationship with Jesus. And therefore, for this, we need a transformation of the church itself. And so we learned that praying for revival, the spirit coming into our lives and transforming us with these new hearts and attitude towards our human enemies is, in fact, the first thing we need to be praying about. And then we learned that in order for that to happen, we need to remove some roadblocks to the Holy Spirit. We talked about particular sins that quench and limit the spirit that we need to repent of. And then we concluded by learning that the corporate dimension of this kind of praying was crucial. And so I'd ask you to mark down September the 29th, 7.30 p.m. for our encounter night so we can actually begin to do this together. And I trust you've already marked it down. If you haven't do so now, protect it and then show up. Today we want to build upon this with the second conviction that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. I want you, in other words, to feel the full force of the word nothing. Now, Jesus' words alone are enough, knowing who he was. But actually, all of scripture reinforces that. So I'm going to walk you through some representative scripture. First of all, Psalm 33, verses 16 to 17. 
The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not saved by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Three times the word great is used to describe power apart from God, and it says it is useless. Then Psalm 147 verse 10 says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. Human physical prowess isn't enough. And then probably one of the clearest statements, Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to la go late to rest. All human effort at building, at watching, at laboring from morning till evening is in vain. In other words, it doesn't accomplish anything of value. Now, these three quotations taken from the Psalms are all from Israel's worship manual. So in their worship life, they were regularly dem demanded that their own resources and strengths were completely inadequate for the task apart from God. Now, before I continue to look at some more scripture to reinforce this idea that apart from God, we can do nothing, I want to handle a possible objection. Perhaps some of you are here this morning, I was so glad you're here, who do not consider yourself followers of Jesus. And you might say, well, just a minute, so the I have built a successful business with a great bottom line. I'm a tenured professor at a university. I'm a successful architect that has designed buildings. And I don't really follow Jesus. What do you mean, apart from him, I can do nothing? Aren't these significant as, uh, achievements? Of course they are. We don't mean to deride the talents, the abilities that God has given to you. For you have been made in his image. But you see the word in, in vain expressed three times here. This is from Hebrew poetry. And in the wisdom literature, of which this is a part, Vanity here doesn't mean literally nothing substantial. It means nothing that truly amounts to anything significant. So much success in the workplace is accompanied by broken relationships. Marriages suffer. Children-parent relationships suffer. The work environment itself is toxic, marked by jealousy, envy, backbiting. In fact, the workplace has become so toxic that surveys show us that 80% of people don't like their work and these toxicity in relationships actually are contributing to employee ill health and even to premature deaths. So vanity in scripture is talking about those kinds of things. Somebody once said, you talk to somebody on their deathbed and ask them, what would you have done differently? Nobody says, I wish I had spent more time at work. All of them talk instead about relationships in their life. That's what I'm talking about. I know it's not an ad complete answer to the question, but if you were struggling with that, I just want to at least give you some lines to think along so that you can continue tracking with me. As I said, thank you for coming, and I hope you will continue to listen. Well, let's, let's continue on our journey through the scriptures. From the worship literature, let's move to the prophets. And this is a very significant one. Isaiah was one of Israel's greatest prophets. And he said, the voice said, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? What is the message? Look at the message. All flesh. And the word flesh there doesn't mean this flesh. It is the, the ability, human ability, apart from God. The flesh, the natural abilities. All flesh is grass. That's the first message God wants to get across. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, the word beauty is interesting. It's not talking about a beautiful face, like, like a Hollywood movie face or a poster boy. The word beauty is the word hased, which is an, almost an untranslatable Hebrew word that carries the idea of faithfulness and loyalty. It is predicated most about of God himself, God's beauty, God's faithfulness, in that he is faithful and he can be counted upon. That's why the section ends with the word of our God stands forever. 
When it is applied to us, the beauty of the flesh is talking about this hesed, the ability of the flesh, the unaided human powers to be loyal and to be faithful, to demonstrate covenantal loyalty. That's why we break our commitments so quickly. That's why we're unreliable. That's why a word and a handshake is not enough. That's why New Year's resolutions fade because in spite of all of our resolve at the moment, our words, our commitments just simply do not have that staying power that God's Hesed has. So the flesh, again, is powerless. Jeremiah was another prophet and prophesying a little bit later than Isaiah was. And he says something very interesting. He says, Thus said the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. See, there's flesh, just human power alone. And it's an issue of trust whose heart turns away from the Lord. So instead of trusting in God, he or she trusts in their own ability. That's the flesh. And look what it says. He's like a shrub in the desert. Other translations call it tumbleweed. And I actually love that translation. You know what tumbleweed looks like? If you've never seen the desert, this is what tumbleweed looks like. And it's called tumbleweed because it is so light that even the slightest puff of wind sends it cartwheeling down the desert or down the roadways. It is rootless, it is weightless, it is fruitless, and therefore it is useless. And the very next verses, Jeremiah would go on to say, but the man or the woman who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by rivers of water. Weighty, rooted, fruitful, and therefore useful. That's the contrast he's painting in here. The flesh, you see, is the word that he's used all the time. Well, that's the Old Testament. Jesus says exactly the same thing, and he said it slightly differently. He said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So you see the, word, the way the word flesh is used throughout Human powers unaided and unconnected from God. And they are powerless to accomplish what we want them to. And then on the other side of Jesus, one of his most powerful or influential early church leaders by the name of Paul said this in Ephesians. He said, be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this section follows with uh, instructions on marriage, parenting and work. And so basically what Paul is saying is when it comes to those spheres of your life, which are, by the way occupies most of our time, life on earth, right? If you put all the time together at home and all the time together at work and add the sleep, that pretty well takes up most of your life. So basically he's saying you need the Holy Spirit Apart from him, apart from the enabling power of the Spirit who exalts Jesus so that we do everything out of reverence for Christ, apart from that, you're not going to accomplish anything in what occupies most of your life. There's that vanity once again. So before Jesus, Jesus, and after Jesus, there's that one unbroken message in Scripture on the powerlessness and the inability of flesh, human ability apart from God. That's why he says apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Now, that's the negative assertion that we cannot do anything. But that's only half the conviction. The other half of the conviction, because remember the purpose of this conviction is to turn prayer from a belief into a value. So this is one half of it. If we really believe we are this helpless, we will pray. Like I cried out to God. If I really believed I was like that all the time, I'd be praying much more. But there's the positive side to it. Ultimately, negatives alone are not enough. There's something positive. And the second half of it is equally important. And that's why I want to state it this way. Not only do we need to increase our conviction that apart from Jesus we can do nothing, we also need to deepen our conviction that something happens every time we pray. 
Blaise Pascal, the French Christian philosopher, put it this way, prayer is God's means of conferring upon human beings the dignity of causality. In other words, we enter into the very creativity of God. Something always happens when we pray. There's not anything else that we do that we can be so sure of about that. But the one thing we can be sure of, he says, that when you pray, you're actually entering into the creative work of God. So apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, but engaging him in prayer, something or the other is always happening. So let me give you some illustrations of that as well. Let's go back to the Psalms one more time. The same worship manual that reminded them that they were powerless in the flesh reminds them of this other stuff too, what happens when we pray. There was a time in David's life when he was helpless. He was under attack probably in a, in a literal enemy setting. He despaired even of life. Maybe the pressure was just far too much. And so he prays. And this is what we see. And just a few extracts from Psalm 18. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. So he's crying out for help. He's obviously helpless. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. He bowed the heavens and came down. Notice the metaphors in here. I'm going to come back to them. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundation of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on eye, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he brought me out into a broad place, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, now this is poetry, right? What is it saying about, I mean, does God really, is he like a dragon, fire-breathing dragon? Is he really blowing like this upon the oceans? No, this is poetry. And when we read poetry, Eugene Peterson pointed out, you don't have more information, you have more immersion in reality. You don't have more explanation, you have more experience. It's just like our poets today when they write songs. Some of us sing a song, you know, we said, I always laugh when I sing that song. It says, uh, love so unbelievable I can hardly breathe. And I say to them, Really? You mean you were so loved by God that you couldn't even breathe? Peace so indescribable I can hardly think. No, the exact opposite happens. When I'm at peace, I can actually think. So what are these people saying? Are they crazy when they write stuff like that? No, no, no. It's poetry because their goal is not to literally analyze those statements. It is to paint a picture of a God of love and a God of peace. And so what David is doing here in this overkill metaphor is this is what happens when we pray. God himself gets stirred up in the heavenly realm. He comes bolting out of his seat, breathing fire. What are the purpose of those metaphors for? To give you more experience, more immersion. My prayers make a difference in the heavenly realms, in the invisible reality. So that when I pray, it's never, never wasted time. So that's one thing we can believe, that things happen in the invisible realms when we pray. Then look at the things that happen within us. Let me go back to Jeremiah once again. Jeremiah was preaching at a time when there were many, many false prophets. You see, they were disobedient to God and they were heading for exile by Babylon. And so Jeremiah was preaching about that. But there were a bunch of false prophets who said, ah, everything's okay, don't listen to this old man here. And you remember the promises, God is faithful to his promise. You go ahead, doesn't matter how you live, you'll be okay. Preaching false peace. And so Jeremiah describes the contrast between true prophets and false prophets in these words. And they will apply to us. He says, for who among them has stood these false prophets. Who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. They would have turned them from their evil ways and from the evil of their deeds. Uh, standing in the counsels of God is another phrase for prayer. Only this time is prayer for listening to God before you speak to people. Now, 
this is talking about prophets. You say, but I'm not a prophet. But in the New Testament, we all are. The Apostle Paul, writing to an early church, says this, you are to, all of us are to priests who are to teach and admonish one another with spiritual wisdom and understanding as we let the word of Christ dwell within us. So it actually applies to all of us, that if we were to stand in God's presence in prayer, just as our prayer moves the hand and the might of God that we saw a few moments ago in Psalm 18, when we stand in God's presence, it affects the power of the words that we speak to people. Whether it's like me speaking as someone who's gifted and commissioned to preach, or whether it's you coming along saying something from God's word that you heard in your own prayer time with him. Many of you can testify to that, right? You can testify to how some people's preaching or teaching, or even if they just speak a few words to your words of encouragement written in a card, they seem to land with power as opposed to other people who are just prattling off nice, nice sayings and they don't really mean much. You've experienced the weightiness. We even use words like, boy, his words or her words carry weight with me. There's that hesed, there's that weight, weightiness once again that Jeremiah talked about. Not tumbleweed words, but tree planted by rivers of living water kind of words. We also see that in prayer. Some people pray and it feels like they're just spouting off canned prayers, jargon. And you want the prayers to end. Other people pray and you can feel a power in those words. One of the most amazing illustrations of this happened in my home once. My wife, Sham, was paying, praying with two or three other Christians. And it was at a time when my mother was living with us. And I'll spare you the details, the longer story, but she was exercised about some dimension of her relationship with my mother. <coughs> and so she felt that the forces of darkness that we talked about last week were actually involved in this. And so <coughs> she ended up praying a very powerful aggressive resistance prayer against the forces of darkness along with the others. Now my mother was sitting further away so she could not hear any of the words. At the end of that prayer time later when Sham went to her, she said to my, to Sham, my mother, who couldn't hear the words, wow, that was a powerful prayer. I want to learn to pray like that. She didn't even hear the words but she knew the power because somebody who had been standing in the councils of God. And by the way, it even can happen with our presence. I remember talking to a lady once in a church who talked about her teenage daughter, how every time her pastor came back to the church after being away somewhere, she would turn to her mother and say, now I feel peace. This is the weightiness that, the, that works within us when we wait upon God. We wait to listen to him, engage with him in his word. And a couple of weeks from now, we'll be talking about how to do that in actual practice. So this is what happens within us. But it also happens through us. Something happens in the heavenly realms and moves the hand of God. Something happens in us and makes our words and our prayers and our presence weighty with people. But something also happens through us because God has conferred upon us the incredible honor of being co-workers together with him in accomplishing his mission. Above all, above all through prayer. Not only through prayer, but above all through prayer. Again, this is throughout scripture. Let me just mention a couple of them. Abraham. Abraham is considered the father of our faith. Well, God first called him to leave his home, which was roughly corresponding to modern-day Iraq and Babylonia, Mesopotamia, and go to a land which we now know to be Canaan or Palestine or Israel. Uh, and there God promised, I'll give you land as an inheritance and I'll give you a destination, people coming from you, descendants. Well, 24 years passed after Abraham responded to this amazing call in faith. And there still was no child that God had given him and Sarah, his wife. 
And so God appears to him and changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many nations. You can imagine the irony of that name change when he didn't have one child through his wife Sarah. And then shortly after that, probably within a year, the scriptures tell us in the very next chapter of Genesis 18 that God shows up one day along with two others, angels. Only the initially their true nature is hidden from Abraham. He just thinks they're three, two human, three human beings. And Abraham prepares a beautiful meal for them. And then in the context of an after-dinner conversation, which is typical Middle Eastern practice, God speaks. It's what uh, Shakespeare would call a soliloquy. He speaks loud enough so he can be heard, although he's not speaking to Abraham. And he says something like this. He said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm now going to do? I have chosen Abraham so that through Abraham, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So I'm going to reveal my agenda for those nations to Abraham. And God tells Abraham about his plans for the destruction of one particular nation called Sodom. And that sets the stage for the very first prayer in the Bible. Isn't it interesting that prayer is the first response of a man whose name has been changed from Abram to Abraham, from exalted father to father of many nations, which underlines his destiny. And after having received from God, with whom he just shared an intimate meal, a revelation of the heart of God, and that provokes prayer. See, this whole point wasn't the story on Middle Eastern hospitality. It was God raising up Abraham to a whole new status of intimacy with him, from servant of God to friend of God. And in the context of that intimacy, he shares his heart for the nations and Abraham prays. That's why I said prayer is the first and foremost expression of our destiny to be participators with God in accomplishing his agenda for the nations. Fast forward almost two millennia to the time of Jesus. We read these words. No longer do I call. Now Jesus is with his disciples. Again, God has come in the form of a man. This time, not just in an external appearance, but truly as a human. He has chosen not one man, Abraham, but 12 disciples. And he's given them that same commission that he gave to Abraham to proclaim the good news to the nations. And he's also just had an intimate meal with them that we call the Last Supper. The parallel between this story and Abraham's story is perfect. And the details are the same. Look, it says here, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. They've been elevated from the status of servants of God to friends of God. A whole new intimacy with God. Why? For all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. The purpose of that intimacy is not just private enjoyment, but discerning the heart of God for the nations. And then, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You have a destiny. The purpose of this intimacy, the purpose of this special revelation is not to set you apart as some special know-it-all, but then to commission you and send you out to work for me because you are co-workers together with me. And then look what he says there. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Prayer once again becomes a fundamental first expression of our our co-worker status with God. So not only is this true in Abraham's case, not only is this true in Jesus' case, it is true all of us because if we read the rest of Scripture, especially Paul's words, you will find that God's word ties the success of every dimension of our mission for him to the prayers of ordinary men and women. So when we pray, not only are the heavens stirred and God moves to action, not only is God working in us to make our prayers powerful, our prayers of speaking, our prayers of uh, praying and our presence, But he also accomplishes through us his mission. And if you look at the scriptures, here are some of the things that God accomplishes as we pray. Laborers are sent out. Whether those laborers are the Kennedys in Tajikistan or whether it's laborers on a Sunday morning 
step setting up the chairs, doing the work of the audiovisual work, prayer ministries, all those volunteers that were celebrated a week ago Saturday, all of those laborers are sent out by prayer. Prayer helps in proclaiming the word of God boldly. Again, whether it's the Kennedys in Tajikistan, whether it's the members of the persecuted church preaching boldly, even though the cost of that might be suffering and death, whether it's me preaching a sermon like this, or whether small group leaders teaching the word of God. Effectiveness and boldness in that comes through prayer. Open doors, whether it's visas to get people into limited access nations, or whether it's favor with the administration of 55 Coster, so that you can continue meeting here, and maybe even get the property eventually at Jane and Rutherford, or whatever is happening in, in your particular site. And then unity, which is so important. You just finished the series on the power of one during the summer months. Unity comes in response. Whether it's unity on the mission field with partners or whether it's unity right here in local churches. Unity in your relationships, unity around the mission. Every one of these things is linked to the prayers of God's brothers and people. No wonder Jesus' parting words to his disciples were these. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance to the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And then he says, <laughs> after telling them to go, he says, but don't go yet. I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Why? Because apart from that, they can do nothing. So they need the Holy Spirit whose job is to magnify Jesus. Without the Spirit, you can do nothing with the Spirit. Given to a praying community in response to the promise of Jesus, we become effective co-workers. So this is the double-edged confession that we've looked at, a conviction that we looked at today. That move prayer from a belief to a value. Last week it was life is war. This week it is apart from Jesus we can do nothing, but something always happens in the heavenly realms, in us or through us when we pray. One last observation with that we're finished. We've called it the series Apprenticing with Jesus. Why? Let me go back to the very beginning. We talked today about helplessness, that we all go through those situations where we need help. And sometimes, not as frequently, when we desperately need help and we pray instinctively. If there was any exception, no human beings are accepted from this, but if there's any exception at all, we might think it would be Jesus, because after all, Jesus was God, right? Yet the Bible tells us that when he became a man in what the Christians call the incarnation, he entered into human limitations as well. That was the emptying himself into the form of a servant. And the amazing thing is Jesus shared our helplessness. Now you might say, Really? Really, when I read the Gospels, I don't see a picture of a helpless man. Well, let's look at his own words. For example, in John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing. Really? We thought he said to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. No, he says the same thing. The Son can do nothing. Nada, zilch, zero, the same nothing. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. And elsewhere he says, the words that I speak, I do not speak of myself. Remember we talked about words coming when we prayed? He said, their father's words given to me. You're amazed at my words? This is why you're, you need to be amazed. Because the father gave them to me as I prayed. So not only negatively, positively, he's gripped by the positive half of the confession too, that every time he prays, something happens. Which is why Jesus prayed all the time. For example, he prayed early in the morning. 
in Mark's gospel, which is the first gospel that was probably written, the first biography of Jesus. It, it begins not with the story of Christmas that we are so familiar with. It just begins with Jesus at work. And day one is extremely busy. Busy teaching, busy calling the disciples, busy healing people, busy casting out demons. And so you might be excused for Jesus kind of well, recovering from all this. But here's what we read, what happens to him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Why? Because he healed so many people. Well, there was a huge lineup of people wanting to be healed. And you would think, well, Jesus already knew what he was supposed to do. No, no, no. He needed to get marching orders every day. He knew that apart from God, he could do nothing. That the works he was doing had to be the Father's works. The words he would speak that day had to be the Father's words. That's why Peter, look what he said. He shocked them all. He said, let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. He got his agenda for that day, not from the pressure of human needs around them, which were always there. He got it from God. So the words he spoke could be the Father's words. The work he did would be the Father's work. And his presence would have power. Not only did he pray early in the morning, he prayed all night on one occasion before choosing the disciples. We read these words. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer. You mean he didn't have enough wisdom to choose 12 disciples? Well, it would seem according to Jesus, no, not by himself. For apart from God, he could do nothing. And so when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now he had wisdom from God. But what about desperate prayer, you say? So you've been talking about this desperation crying out to God. How would Jesus have known desperation prayer? Well, as he got closer to the cross, when he anticipated a horrible ordeal on the cross, and not just the physical one, but of paying the price for our redemption, that total radical separation from God, a holy God, as he took upon himself our sin, the thought was so terrifying that he lost it in terms of physically, and he cries out in desperation. And we read these words. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. I can't handle this. I can't go to the cross. I don't have the power. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I can only do what you do, Father. And notice this. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. As desperate as I was 35,000 feet up in the air, I wasn't sweating drops of blood. That was the extent of his desperation and his helplessness. And it is this God who became man to teach us. As you've heard so often being taught here in Upper Room, that in the incarnation we see the beginning of a whole new stream of humanity who can live a life of total dependence on God and total loyalty to God. And when you and I become followers of Jesus and the Holy Spirit conceives the very life of Christ within us, in potential now we have what it takes to be able to gradually learn to live that life. That is why we need to do what the disciples did. They saw Jesus' life like this. They saw him praying like this. And they said, wow, Lord, please teach us to pray. Of course, when they asked him anything, they were actually praying. When you ask God something, that's what praying is. So they learned to pray by, being, by asking God to teach them to pray. We learned to pray by praying. Last week I told you we learned to pray by hanging around with people who pray. Here I'm saying to you, ask Jesus to teach us to pray. That's why we are apprenticing under Jesus in prayer by prayer. And the way he answers it is not just by teaching like you're getting today. And that's what I beg God, that my words would be his words, not my own words. 
but more than anything else, he does it by drawing us into his praying life. Because if we know that the incarnation was the beginning of a new humanity, what was the resurrection all about? What was the ascension all about? That's Jesus now at the right hand of God the Father, the ascended, resurrected, ascended Christ. You know what he's doing? The book of Hebrews tells us he is ever living to make intercession for us. So whenever we pray, we're actually being drawn into the very prayer life of Jesus himself. So one of the things I do regularly when I begin my prayer time is to simply pray, Lord Jesus, I know you are praying right now. You've never stopped praying. I want you to draw me into your very presence so that you will teach me even as I'm going through this time of prayer by your own prayer life. Next two weeks, we're going to look at the last two convictions that are needed to handle the problem of busyness and boredom. But for now, what do I need you to do? The same two things. First of all, mark down Sunday evening, September 29th. Protect that appointment if you haven't already done so and come so that we can do that corporate praying for revival. And then just like the last week, review this week's message to deepen that second conviction that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing and things always happen when we pray. Have the worship team come up now. Lead us in our closing song as I pray together. Lord, I just want to say thank you. You're always faithful, Jesus. I celebrate your faithfulness. I bless you that your hesed, your beauty of your words stands forever. Mine aren't. And so that's why I have to spread out my helplessness, my lack of that hesed, my lack of loyalty, my lack of faithfulness to you. So that Increasingly, my words can become like your words. My works can become like your works. My, my prayers can become like your prayers. My presence can become like your presence. Thank you, Jesus, that not only do you say to me that apart from you, I can do nothing, but that in you and through you, I can do all things. And that you have given to us this wonderful dignity of causality through prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.